0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I am joined today by Nathan Vidal to talk about his new book, The Culture of Language in Ming China: Sound, Script, and the Redefinition of Boundaries of Knowledge. Welcome to New Books, Nathan, and thank you so very much for taking the time to talk with me today.
0: Thank you, Sarah, for having me. I'm really excited to have this chance to talk about the book with you.
1: Of course. So why don't we start as is traditional with, before we get to the book, with you. (laughs) So how did you come to work on Chinese history and specifically the history of the Ming dynasty?
0: Right. Uh, I guess I took a Bit of a circuitous route into uh, Chinese history and maybe academia in, in general, uh, I had done my undergraduate training in music at a music conservatory. I played double bass um, and my life up until that point had primarily been um, devoted to practicing and preparing for a career in performance. Um, but I had started studying the Chinese language in high school Uh, and was fortunately able to uh, continue studying um, through college, through a reciprocal arrangement between the conservatory and and another university. Um, And when I had finished my time at the conservatory, I was sort of at this crossroads where um, I could continue um, along the path of music performance or uh, try something else. And I'd been uh, so... uh, captivated by initially the study of the language and then moving from that to literature and history that uh, I felt compelled to um, at least pursue Chinese studies uh, a while longer. Um, so I entered graduate school first and master's program and then um, PhD. Uh, and I guess uh, the road toward Ming uh, for me stemmed out of uh, what had been a longstanding uh, interest in the history of, of language study. Uh, and there's a much longer story of how I'd kind of come across uh, the texts that I look at in the book that are you know, Ming linguistic um, writings that had largely been neglected. But uh, after i had come across this, this set of books, I immediately fell in love with them because, uh, well, frankly, I couldn't really make, heads or tails of what was going on inside of them. They, 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 they seem clearly to be primarily uh, invested in linguistic questions, describing, categorizing, cataloging things about language. Um, and yet they did so by talking about all of these other things I would tend to think have nothing at all to do with uh, language like music, mathematics, cosmology. Um, and so this is what really drew me, uh, First of all to these kind of texts and really to the Ming in general which is uh, I think a period a really ecumenical period in which we see all these interesting um, intersections of uh, literature uh, but also classical studies um, in in ways that um, tend to be uh, uh, less uh, well I don't want to say you know interesting in another period but, uh, but- <laughs> Uh, certainly, the kinds of of uh, wild argumentation uh, uh, that uh, are really captivating something I think unique um, in this period and, and drew drew me toward it initially.
1: Fascinating. I have to admit, when I was reading, um, especially the middle chapters of this book, the question that was I was initially thinking of asking was, "How did a how did a historian feel about you know working with music?" And now I realize that I should have flipped that question. Um, <laughs> Given your origin, um, given your sort of trajectory, if you like, um, into this into this work, uh, but thank you for setting that up. So, language, literature, history, music—all of which, really, I suppose, comes through um, in the book itself. Um, so, you know, with that, why don't we dive into it? So, your book is, as the title suggests, really about language. Um, you know, you begin the introduction with this key question, what is the nature of language? Um, and the book then looks at how scholars in the Ming studied language and how their practices reflect broader intellectual trends and literary trends, because as you just sort of hinted at, Um, The study of language, philology, was bound up in the Ming with subjects beyond the strictly linguistics. Um, And overall, then, the book unravels the logic underlying the interconnectedness of knowledge and its implications for our understanding of late imperial Chinese scholarly practice, to quote from the introduction. Um, So much of this book focuses on philology, and you show that it was a really, as you just said, vibrant, interesting, complicatedly interconnected field, um, which were all things about it that were then criticized in later periods. So could you explain this a little bit? So how did, you know, Qing scholars in particular, looking backwards in time, Think about Ming scholarship and how did this then shape and really, you know, define how scholars since the Qing have approached Ming intellectual history?
0: Well, I think you've you've really hit it at the core here. Of uh, you know, in the book, I, I make reference to uh, more recent uh, historiography about you know late imperial Chinese intellectual history, but I think a lot of that really traces back, in fact, just as you say, to the Qing Dynasty in the 18th century, uh, when scholars begin looking back at some of these earlier practices in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, and largely, in my view, writing them out of the history of scholarship or of uh, valid intellectual activity. um, And they have very prominent venues, first of all, in which they can do that, um, particularly, uh, and perhaps most famously, the Siku Quanzhu, um project in the late 18th century, commissioned by the emperor to collect, compile um, all of the texts in the realm. Um, and there is, first of all, the uh, Sikuquanshu proper, which is a um, collection of books um, and very, very few Ming linguistic texts are included there. So, first of all, this very prominent collection excludes um, much of this earlier tradition. Um, there is, however, a bibliographical catalog that accompanies the collection that is much more inclusive insofar as it uh, includes the titles of many of these Ming texts and uh, a brief evaluation uh, in which the Qing editors essentially. Um, Systematically uh, criticize all of the elements they see as so misguided uh, about these Ming scholars that they, um, precisely the fact that they didn't keep strictly to uh, one uh, historical time frame, for instance, which for the Qing scholars was primarily we should look at antiquity and, and base our understanding of antiquity uh, through the uh, uh, study or corroboration of other texts from antiquity. Um, The fact that the Ming scholars were going at kind of across time uh, was an issue. Uh, The fact that they pulled on all these other apparently non-linguistic fields was another uh, uh, major issue for the Qing scholars who uh, argued that this was not really true uh, philology and and therefore could be uh, ignored And this attitude uh, was, I mean, they were really quite successful, I think, in in writing out these texts because they didn't really factor into uh, most of the later retellings of of, uh, late imperial intellectual history that have, for the most part, uh, taken for granted their telling of the story, uh, which is that they created uh, this field of learning in, in the 18th century, uh, with the exception of a few kind of hand-picked uh, predecessors in earlier periods, including they acknowledged there were a couple of good guys in the Ming as well. Um, but it really kind of misrepresenting what uh, uh, was actually going on in this earlier period. And, and that's kind of the premise of my book is that scholars in the Ming in the 16th and the 17th century didn't think that they were bad scholars. You know, they weren't waiting for people in the 18th century to come save them and save the history of linguistics. Um, But instead that they developed uh, these particular methodologies for studying language based on a set of epistemological assumptions about the nature of correct or valid knowledge.
1: Mm -hmm. As you were just saying, the... um you know, you, the, this is the premise of the book. And your approach then is to really look at these earlier thing, scholars and take them, you know, um, how would I put it, at, at face value, or at least to follow their logic where their logic leads, right? As you said, they're not waiting for the 18th century for someone to make sense of them. Um, they, they know what they're doing. It's just, you know, they know what they're doing. It makes sense to them. Um, and this really ties in then with something I really appreciated about your book was the way in which you you approach um, intellectual change, intellectual thought and ideas, not in terms of present-day categories and but in terms of historical ones. Um, And this is something that you raise several times, you know, quite explicitly in the book, particularly when you're pointing out, you know, possibilities of uh, present day comparisons or comparisons across the early modern world that, you know, these are some similarities, but but I'm going to look at these. Um, Ming scholars based on historical actors categories. Um, so I'm hoping you might say a little bit about this. Why why was this approach important to you, and how did it you know shape the work of you know putting the book together um, of the book that exists as it does today?
0: That's a good question. I think uh, it became essential for this project uh, because I wanted to understand how people study language. And in fact, there are some really useful tools uh, to do that. Uh, but you have to kind of uh, relinquish, you know, the assumptions we have about uh, what these texts, what might constitute language or the study of language, for instance. Um, and, and this goes back to this point about them not being, um, <clears throat> not thinking that they were bad scholars. They they seemed like bad scholars to the Qing's you know, Qing uh, scholars, and then today, I mean, I'm not saying that I think that they were actually good, necessarily, from our perspective today of what constitutes valid uh, linguistic observation. Um, but uh, in order to do the best I could to, to remove you know, my biases about what linguistic study uh, looks like, um, of course, what the 18th century Qing scholars, what they thought, um i resorted to uh the, some of the what i see is the, the best um um indicators of these kind of contemporary categories so those would be for instance bibliographical catalogs which um include uh sections that are, are variously labeled but uh indicate that their content is is linguistic in nature so one of the the most useful categories is that of uh, xiao uh, literally the lesser the lesser learning um, but uh, generally is used to um, refer to uh, three main areas of linguistic study the study of linguistic sound study of script and uh, study of the meaning of, of words um, and These contemporary terms, which were often used then to categorize the text I was looking at, um, served as my guide to what thinkers of the time actually uh, believed that they were working on, even if it didn't necessarily appear that way um, from a present day perspective.
1: Perfect. Thank you for setting that up. Um, And on that topic of what they actually believed they were working on... (laughs) (laughs) let's dive into I think you might be able to tell where I'm going with this (laughs) let's dive into chapter one Uh, so chapter one is part of part one and part one really sets you know sets the scene for the rest of the book that follows in that it establishes you know the um, communities of learning the religious philosophical and cosmological communities of learning in the world of philology in the Ming Um, but chapter one might be you know, th- the most important of all three, uh, in that it, it unpacks the epistemological underpinnings of Ming philology, which revolves around self-so-knowledge. So <laughs> what is self-so-knowledge and how did it shape and change the way that Ming literati did their philological work?
0: Right. So I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. You know, if, if anyone were were to read one chapter of the book, it it really, it probably should be the first, uh, which I think much of the argument uh, in later chapters really um, comes out of uh, some of what is established in that first chapter. And in particular, as you say, uh, this issue of of self-so knowledge, the the term ziran, meaning something that is so of itself, um, it can be understood, I think, also, uh, in comparison or in contrast to what it is not, the the typical just uh, juxtaposition we see in these texts is that which is self-so ran, versus that which is uh, man-made wei. Um, so things that are are man-made are characterized by artifice uh, and constrained by the limited uh, potential of observation that any individual has. Um, What is self-so, by contrast, uh, is something that is validated um, not by the observation or perception of an individual, uh, but rather uh, the coherence that underlies um, all things um, in the universe. So this Uh, of course, uh, harkens back to a very important, uh, we can say for shorthand, Neo-Confucian idea of Li or a coherence uh, that uh, fundamentally ties together, um, that is unitary, shared among all things, despite their different manifestations. Um, And the significance of this uh, universality for Ming thinkers was that there were a lot of linguistic issues that we don't know the answer to. Uh, we don't know what is the best categorization system um, or to decide how many you know, rhymes exist or how many uh, syllable initials. All of these are kind of open questions. Um, in order to solve these unknowns, if we posit that in fact, these kind of categories belong to some much grander universal scheme, that perhaps we can reach out Um, into other related fields of knowledge. And based on the knowns from those fields, we can begin to solve for the unknowns um, in language. So the kind of paradigmatic example would be the relationship that's established between um, music and language. Uh, Music uh, being a field that, first of all, had deep cosmological roots um, in antiquity, um, and was long held to have a kind of uh, inviolable uh, basis in mathematics or arithmetic calculations. So we can uh, understand the the number of pitches in the musical scale that is produced by this um, infallible arithmetic calculation. Um, so there are 12 pitches. This must be... Um, a kind of sonic category or number, right, 12, um, that is based in these universal truths. We know that from, from music, it has been established and proven. Let's establish that, uh, let, or let's apply that rather um, to another arena that involves sound, that of linguistic sound. And so we see in this period then the, this explosion of, of experimentation with 12-part uh, categorizations of you know, syllables or this kind of thing, um, but based on a calculation that's fundamentally rooted in this idea that um, there are uh, uh, universal uh, truths, and we can deduce those, for instance, through mathematical calculation in some contexts, um, and then use those to apply to, to language.
1: Mm-hmm. When you were talking before about you know looking beyond um, your own bias and the biases of of the Qing scholars, um, I was reminded of the way that you talk about in this chapter that Ming scholars are trying to use this idea of self-so knowledge to surpass the limits of human perception and bias, right? Just thinking about how that ties back to your um, earlier point that you made about, um, you know, you're not <laughs> not trying to claim that they were doing work that is of the kind we would recognize today, but there's certainly some, you know, some, um, they're not, uh, how would I put it? What they're trying to get at <laughs> is maybe recognizable, right? And the idea that i um, trying to look beyond, Um, the limits of human perception or bias itself.
0: That's exactly right. And then at at the end of of, uh, that first chapter, I try to juxtapose this idea of self-so-knowledge with the later Western conception of objective knowledge, which at least at a discursive level, there is this similarity of objectivity as uh, often being mechanized, of, of going beyond, uh, human observation. Um, so, as you say, very recognizable in that sense. And in fact, the, these Ming scholars were aware of, of ways of studying language that resembled um, the methods that the later Qing scholars would use. Um, but the mainstream Ming thinkers generally um, criticized those methods as, as faulty precisely because of their reliance um, on um, their textual records that they felt were inadequate. Um, that we don't have that much text left from antiquity, which is also you know, a reasonable claim, um, as well as the idea that you know, observation or you know, our, my personal preference for you know, this dialect is going to motivate my uh, construction of a, a linguistic categorization system. Um, and so just as you say, that the, the, one of the primary arguments here is, is that we want to surpass these kind of biases to create a truly kind of comprehensive Uh, linguistic system that uh, is is not something that could be criticized as being the product of uh, the limits. One thing that comes up again and again is that humans can only hear certain sounds. And once someone is no longer um, an infant, uh, their speech becomes constrained by what they hear around them. So they also can't utter certain sounds. Um, And these were all seen as kind of limiting factors that cosmological methods that relied on this idea of there being an alternative, that which is self-so, um, could surpass.
1: I was reminded when you were describing, you know, from, from infancy, of the, I think there's a line here, something about um, uh, babies crying in multiple parts as well, or mm-hmm. <laughs> something about mm-hmm. from, from infancy, I was just reminded of that, uh, which struck me as like, huh, yes, yes, they do.
0: Yes, oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's this. Uh, the, yeah, there's a constant refrain among many different thinkers from this period about how, you know, um, all infants, um, you know, at, at uh, you know at birth make the same cry, mm-hmm. um, and it's only over time that they they start. We start to see these kind of differentiations in region, for instance, uh, which I think yeah, if, if anyone has spent. Enough time in the pediatrician's office. You, you might, it's, it can be difficult to, to separate <laughs> um, among and then and, and, uh, and indeed even for people who study that sort of the physiology of, of you know, um, how humans uh, develop speech. It, it is yeah, we all know that that young um, people, right? They can uh, very quickly uh, learn to speak a language fluently with flawless pronunciation, and that uh, that ability decreases as we get older. So again, this is an, a kind of observation that is rooted in. in in, in things that we believe to be true today as well. Um, but then the way that they try and, um, get around these issues is, is of course quite different.
1: Mm -hmm. So speaking of things that Ming scholars knew about and things that they knew of, um, this moves us, you know, one of the things that they were aware of was different language systems, different scripts, and in particular, um, phonological scripts, which is something that you look at that in chapters two and three, which make up part one of the book. Um, so these chapters, and I'm just going to briefly sort of touch on some of the core ideas and things that these chapters talk about. Um, uh, so one of the main things that these Ming scholars are dealing with, though, is is uh, phonological scripts and the way that they transcribe sounds that do not exist in Chinese. (laughs) And here you look in particular at Sanskrit, although Latin appears as well. Um, So chapter two mainly looks at that. Chapter three looks at how the debate over um, phonographic writing played out in terms of how thinkers are thinking about Chinese writing. Um, So something that led to new proposals about how to index and retrieve information. Um, And in both of these chapters, again, thinking of, you know, things that Ming scholars were aware of, uh, you make the point that this idea that a phonographic script is superior to logographic writing. This was not something that Ming scholars thought that was not something that was evident to them in the way that um, later language reformers might make the case that the, this is true. This was definitely not the case for Ming scholars. Um, but you also note that thinkers did disagree in this period about what the source of the superiority of Chinese graphs actually was. Um, so you look at a number of different thinkers here. Um, but could you touch on maybe a few of the ideas that were being bandied about as to what made, to, to Ming scholars, Chinese graphs so superior? What were sort of the strengths that they saw um, in, in Chinese
0: yeah that that's, that's it's a good point. I think you bring in uh, our awareness of, of later uh, reformers um, because certainly um, when initially I was seeing this this very surprising, uh, I think based on on our understanding of, of the history of, of language study in China, very surprising attention to phonographic writing systems already in this period, um, one of the the questions that's always going to come up is, well, you know, was there any idea that, in fact, that could uh, replace uh, Chinese characters? Um, and uh, th- as far as I've seen, with one or two exceptions, the idea never really um, comes up. The- there is a sense that phonographic writing systems are very useful um, within the context of um, theoretical phonology, um, just as you say, uh, we if we want to represent all possible sounds. Um, And if we can't do that solely with Chinese characters, uh, these kind of uh, phonographic writing systems can be used to supplement Chinese writing in that context. Um, But they're not really seen as something that's going to be useful uh, for everyday writing um, in this way that, for instance, later reformers, of course, will say, oh, this is the road toward mass literacy is to have phonetic writing. and yeah, there are many uh, reasons why uh, Chinese characters are still uh, held to be the the superior writing system. Uh, I think perhaps the most interesting uh, criticisms of of phonographic writing would be, for instance, uh, the idea that in fact it's more confusing um, than than the Chinese character, which you know we we know. There are a set of rules that apply to every Chinese character. That uh, it contains the sound of, you know, one syllable. Um, it has you know, one. Uh, of course, it can have more than one, but but also, you know, there's sort of one fundamental uh, semantic sense to each character. So it's it's kind of this uh, compact unit of sound and meaning. Uh, whereas uh, phonographic writing, um, particularly to readers who are not. I'm as familiar with it, um, seems quite baffling. Uh, the idea that, uh, especially given that phonographic writing was largely um, evident in these very kind of abstract theoretical texts on language. So it was associated more with these kind of uh, uh, almost phonographic calculations in which you would first, you would look at something written down phonetically and then go through a rather arduous process of putting together those sounds in your mind to uh, figure out what the, you know, just how the word would be read out loud. And then an additional process of associating that sound that you, you just uttered with a word. And so it seemed much less efficient uh, than Chinese writing. Uh, the other, uh, I think, interesting um, argument that, that comes up at some point in the book is one is, uh, uh, Thinker who actually says, you know what, I I will grant that the phonographic writing is simpler. Uh, It is, in fact, you know, easier to learn than Chinese. But that's precisely the point. That's why Chinese is superior, at least for Chinese civilization. We are so rich that um, only Chinese characters could possibly uh, fully characterize or encompass everything. Um, that we have um, and it's only those that are culturally impoverished that could rely on such you a know, writing system that doesn't have this kind of greater significance we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end. What will I become?
1: Senwa saga Hellblade 2. Play it now with
0: Game Pass.
1: I love the um the there's a line in here somewhere which is, you know, one might recognize the sound, but not the meaning. <laughs> thinking of pornographic scripts. Um, Yeah, there's, there's much in these chapters. um, And, you know, lots of different thinkers, lots of different ideas, as you just sort of highlighted a few, there's, as I, as I indicated, or as you sort of summarized, um, you know, definitely read chapter one, do not skip chapters two and three. Um, And definitely don't skip part two, which is where I'm going to move us, which I will play my cards. I enjoyed very, very much. Um, So part two of the book um, looks at the interaction of literature and textual philology. Um, So chapter four looks at opera specifically, Um, and this is a really fascinating chapter, at least it was to me. (laughs) As you look here at pronunciation debates and debates about regional difference and, you know, and you show how, you know, these debates over regional difference and how or whether to standardize the language really brought um, classicists and philologists into dialogue with opera librettists. Um, So people who were concerned with establishing a fundamental unified pronunciation for recitation and singing. (laughs) Um, And you point out that in this chapter, um, this fascination with pronunciation has sometimes been characterized as sort of, you know, a kind of elite strategy, um, a sort of a form of connoisseurship. Um, But you suggest that operatic language debates were not solely intended for the eyes of fellow librettists. Um, so so much of this chapter is about the cross-fertilization between operatic and classical philology. And again, as with previous chapters, you talk about a number of different writers. Um, is there maybe one you could introduce us to? Someone who, you know, combines the <laughs> operatic and philological sort of worlds together. Someone who's, who, who does that cross-fertilization sort of work.
0: Definitely. Uh, I think probably the best example would be this uh, opera theorist uh, named Shen Chongzui. Um, Shen Chongzui writes... Uh, a manual um, that is, uh, it's titled Duqi Xizhi. So basically things you need to know um, to write opera. Duqi could also mean to to sing opera as well. But um, the title of this book, when you see it, you would think of course, this is only relevant for people very much in the opera trade, right? This is a pedagogical text, and it is a pedagogical text for uh, librettists to consult. And also, it, it's clearly directed um, at the training of singers that they uh, uh, they learn the proper methods of pronunciation. Um, this is a big concern in this period, as we have these kind of expanding literary markets, uh, but at the same time, regional forms of drama. How can we have these operatic performances? Uh, rendered in such a way that um, audiences in different regions can still understand what's being sung. Uh, so on the one hand, this, this manual uh, walks through, you know, the methods of training singers, gives very practical tips about uh, enunciation, uh, but it also is deeply invested with these, uh, thorny cosmological, philological issues that, that characterize some of the most abstract, uh, theoretical work among, um, classical scholars of language. Um, and not only, uh, does it cite, um, some of those texts. Um, so clearly we, we, this is not a guess. We know that, that uh, Shen Songzue was reading those books and, and taking inspiration from them. Um, He also was innovating new uh, techniques of representing sound. Uh, Most famously, uh, he uh, created a new way of of dividing up the Chinese syllable into three parts rather than two, which had been the primary way of of talking about linguistic sound prior to this text. Um, And he also hints at the fact that this book could be useful for these scholars outside of Uh, of operatic circles he says that you know people will be able to recite the classics better for instance when they adopt his method of describing pronunciation Um, but for me i think the most enjoyable or most uh you know kind of striking thing was to to see that in fact uh we can see very clearly that classical philologists were reading uh this opera pronunciation guidebook and, and quite a number of them would would cite him explicitly. Um, there were debates about, oh, well is this only appropriate for opera? And, and the conclusion generally was like no, uh, in fact, these are universal principles about language um, that he's discussing. Um, and in fact, the cosmological phonologist whose earlier work had been cited in this handbook um, in a much later work he writes when he's, you know an older scholar, he cites uh, the opera handbook. Um, So there's this constant uh, uh, sort of interchange um, between these two fields that is very clearly displayed in the citations among these works. And is very surprising because we tend... The the opera, of course, is one of the most famous things when we talk about, you know, I was mentioning at the very beginning, you know, why why am I and why are many people attracted to the Ming dynasties? Because of this kind of... um, literary splendor of some of the great operas for instance um in the late ming um and we tend to think of that as so separate from the kind of uh boring world of classical philology uh, that will take you know holes later on in, in chinese history um but what we see in the ming is in fact a decent could really go go hand in hand and, and uh in a collaborative way that uh is um one of the ways in which we can, I think, understand the difference in, in what's going on in this period compared to later periods.
1: Also, something that um, is very important for you know the boring world of officialdom as well. I mean, you touch on here. I think I think it's a different writer, but you talk about a different writer, um, sort of saying that you know traveling officials ought to also work on their pronunciation and, you know, these kinds of guides might also be useful for them yeah, yeah, exactly. in, work, in working to standardize their accents. Yeah,
0: yeah that's, that's right. And that, that particular case is, is actually is Li Yu, who is one of the most, you know, well-known literary figures of this period, but always as a representative of that kind of um, extreme of, of sort of uh, literary indulgence in, in the late Ming and early Qing. Um, When in fact, he's also apparently uh, well-versed in these, you know, classical philological studies um, and proposes just what you've highlighted here. There's this, uh, you know, really wild idea that, uh, you know, opera, he says, I think something like opera is, you know, could be the universal language because it's this area in which we pay so much attention to pronunciation. um, It could be very useful in other contexts where people need to learn to uh, you know, uh, refine their pronunciation, such as the traveling officials who are going all over China. If they paid more attention to what we're doing here in the opera community, maybe, you know, there wouldn't be these kind of miscommunications based on, you know, um, you know unintelligible local dialects. Mm-hmm.
1: On the, um, speaking of, you know, the, the, places in which philology is found or brought into in the different (laughs) uses that it's put to, um, that sort of, you know, the plurality of interest, that really carries over into chapter five, uh, which looks at something I think touched on a few times now, but the intersection of classical and literary learning, um, and specifically uh, how literary modes of reading Um, were applied to classical works. So here um, you look in particular at how the dominant Qing approach, (laughs) which we might summarize as the six classics are all history, Uh, you have in the Ming instead a different approach. The six classics are all rhyming texts. So very different way of thinking of the classics. Um, And you also, I'll just note, um, you also explore here how Ming scholars tried to reconstruct the melodies of antiquity Uh, Which predated the invention of musical notation, um, on all on the premise that there's a connection between musical and linguistic sound. So, and I will just note that part of the chapter is fascinating, and there are notes, (laughs) and there there are some examples which. But I'll park that for now. What I wanted to ask about um, is about this approach to the classics. And I'm really curious, actually, as to how this, this Ming approach and thinking of the classics as being rhyming texts and literary texts, um, how it actually shapes how, you know, you think of the classics or how you might teach the classics. Um, are there sort of thinking both about this chapter and be, maybe places in which this chapter might move to in terms of its being used? Um, has this changed the way that you think? Think or teach the classics at all?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, first, before parking that earlier issue about the 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 notes in in the, the the musical notes in in the chapter, I would highly suggest if if anyone has a keyboard and in, in, in this chapter in front of them <laughs> to try and play them because it's uh it, it's um it's amusing to 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 see this process of these what sounds like you know melodies, um, and then the progression to these. Uh, pretty horrendous, um, you know. <laughs> just, just don't seem to have any kind of tonal center, um, melodies that, uh, but that were based on these calculations um, that are in turn are, are you know rooted in the idea that, as you said, the, the musical and linguistic sound must be related. Um, I have,
1: <laughs> I have not tried it, but now I know exactly what I'm going to be
0: doing after
1: <laughs> after we finish this.
0: I, I it, it's well worth it to just to, okay. to imagine. Wait, 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 was this person serious <laughs> that this was probably the, the melody for this ancient poetry, this, you know, what sounds like a kind of a t- 12 tone, uh, you know, uh, free for all. So, um, but but back to your, your question about as has changed how I think about or teach the classics. Um, I think I think that it could, um, I, you know, if, if in general, I think this project has, has pushed me to, to think, Beyond um, disciplinary boundaries that uh, govern govern the departments we belong to in universities, that uh, that uh, you know, uh, to a certain extent, uh, you know, are the, the conferences we attend, the the societies, the academic societies uh, that are organized by, um, and that in some ways, that, you know, force the directions in which we. Do research um as well as teach um and I think uh working on this book really uh pushed me to to reevaluate you know my assumptions about what things go together and how to approach yeah as you say texts like the classics I think um there could be a very valuable uh, uh, way of teaching these books uh based on 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 their literary uh merit or or how. Might we understand, um, you know, the literary narrative of the Analects, which you know I'm sure my colleagues in early China might be very angry to, 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 to you know, based on on their deep knowledge of how the text was actually constructed. Um, but uh, for most of its history, you know, it existed in a form in, in a book that people might read in in, in different ways, um, and I think. Uh, getting students, uh, to, to approach these texts, not necessarily, uh, exclusively for, um, their sort of important and potentially, you know, universal ideas that they, they contain, uh, but also to, to think about why, what kind of, you know, enjoyment we can derive from them on an aesthetic level, I think, uh, it can only be, you know, an additional kind of value to, uh, these texts, uh, both personally and, and um, on the teaching level.
1: Absolutely. And it, it is, you know, the, as I said, I will definitely be finding some way to play the musical notes after this, but it really is the, the earlier really part of the chapter as well really is a really interesting um, rethinking, or at least it was for me, um, way of rethinking and thinking anew about um, texts that I've read <laughs> before in a very different way. Um, but Thinking about disciplinary boundaries. (laughs) Part three of your book is really all about disciplinary boundaries. Um, And this really looks at the afterlives of Ming texts and methodologies. Um, So chapter six, appropriately named Afterlives, um, really details how later Qing scholars um, didn't really think much of the cosmological and literary modes of philological study that we've been talking about. Um, But it also shows that despite their dismissal, Ming methods did survive in the Qing, and that some texts from the Ming did continue to be, you know, reprinted and new editions in this later period. Um, so, in this chapter, there's a number of texts and figures that come up earlier in the book that are <laughs> that make a return, um, just in new forms or in interesting places. Um, so. I'm curious when you were doing the research for this chapter, was there a later use or reprint that you found particularly surprising? You know, something that you really wouldn't have expected later Qing scholars to have found useful at all that they, you know, seem to have.
0: Yeah. I think one example that comes to mind uh, would be a, a, essentially a, a dictionary or a rhyme dictionary. <clears throat> Um, called Wu Fang Yuan Yin. Uh, yuan Yin means something like the originary or primordial sounds, um, and then the Wu Fang so with the five directions. Um, so, the idea of Yuan Yin was one of the sort of primary uh, motivators of Ming philological thinkers. Was um, to you know that they were you know going to uh, again get past human bias and reconstruct. Uh, sort of the original sounds uh, before they were corrupted by humans. So the title of this work uh, itself is very clearly rooted in that tradition uh, and then if if you open it up um, in the sort of first uh, editions of the text um, which is actually an early Qing text I should say when I I say uh, Ming also often is kind of a shorthand the methods that extend a few decades past the, the end of the Ming state but um uh, when you open up this text, and it—sure it, enough—it it goes into considerable detail about these cosmological underpinnings of the text in self so knowledge, and includes all these kind of cool cosmological diagrams, uh, for instance, that are very common in, in Ming philological text. Um, but it turns out that this was a really popular book uh, throughout the Qing dynasty as well, um, which I found. Um, pretty surprising given the general um, denigration of that method of study in the period uh, and so I, I went about looking at then some of these later additions um, and how do they handle with uh, or how do they handle or deal with this uh, you know cosmological inheritance um, uh, this particular example is more of a crude approach in which they basically just chop it all out and um, and uh, so, you know, uh, although they don't change the title of the book, um, which is already, you know, invokes this kind of cosmology, um, that kind of cosmological framework that uh, um, accompanies much of the kind of paratextual material at the beginning of the book uh, in many of the later editions is largely excised. Um, so that's one one way of doing it. But then they kind of go one step further in the later editions uh, really kind of in defiance of so the original intention of the book say, this is a dictionary of official court, uh, you know, pronunciation. Um, so, so they really kind of rub it in the face of, you know, I they think their the original version was to say, uh, not only are we going to remove, but we're going to reframe it as a book that's uh, useful for uh, understanding very specific uh, style of pronunciation. Um, so that, that to me was very uh, one you know striking example. Um, we see other uh, interesting uses of these earlier texts too, in which they seem to think that there's valuable information um, compiled as long as it can kind of be extracted, uh, and, and the husk of this you know kind of earlier methodology left to rot in the past.
1: I think in some ways that's a great illustration of how different um, the Qing period is from. <laughs> For at least, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries mm-hmm. are from mm-hmm. the earlier period, as we were just descri- as you were, you know, talking about it and describing it before as being, you know, a melding of different disciplines and whatnot. Here, it's a little bit or it's much more rigid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, only yeah. the husk sort of yeah. remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, the husk, the husk can stay. Everything else can go.
0: Right. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, at this then, you know, thinking about what stays and what what remains and what doesn't, um, this sort of is all, right, I guess, wrapped up for the moment, at least, um, in Chapter 7, which looks at sort of the afterlife of philological communities and disciplinary boundaries of the Ming, as we've just sort of been touching on a little bit. Um, so you note that uh, 18th and 19th century scholars formed similar networks of scholarship, and they, you know, they too valued philology, but... <laughs> They reframed the boundaries of philology. They narrowed it down. They focused exclusively on the language of ancient te- texts and husks of others. Um, and so much of this chapter really does focus on this new kind of disciplinary um, specialization in the Qing um, and one, you know, one thing I want to highlight about this chapter is your exploration of the growth um, of a historical narrative for the origins of philology um, and how this redefinition came to highlight particular figures, um, particular individuals whose methods, you know, were approved of in the Qing at the expense of others. Um and, you know, this idea of, you know, um, recovering the histories of texts of some of the people that, you know, Ching scholars left out, <laughs> that's really something that is, you know, carried through all the different chapters of your book. Um, so, you know, before we wrap up our conversation fully... Are there any last, you know, seemingly obscure texts or obscure figures that you want to highlight here? (laughs) Either either someone who's made it in the book or maybe someone who didn't make it in the book. Is there anyone you want to sort of mention here that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? In in the spirit of um, highlighting of the, you know, quote, the, um, what is it? Uh, The single quotation marks, unworthy scholars.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean. Well, if I'm, I might, I might uh, think of two people actually. Well, one one of whom is actually not unknown, um, but I, I hope that um, his appearance in the book could, um, you know, he, he his work outside of just the fields I discuss in, in this in the book could 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 stand for for a much broader kind of reevaluation, and that is uh, Fang yi zhi. So Fang yi zhi is long been understood as is a you know a pivotal. Um, intellectual uh, in, in the mid-17th century, um, usually, though, in the sense of foreshadowing uh, what was to come in the Qing dynasty. Um, and what I tried to do in the, in the book was to situate him and, and make him actually much less pivotal in, in some sense and, and more representative um, of the kind of philological activity that was occurring at the time, that he was uh, deeply concerned with cosmological methods um, and thought that those were the key to um, kind of unlocking uh, the comprehensive description of of linguistic sound, um, and so by situating this this figure uh, as a kind of a representative of broader trends at his time, I think there could be more, much more, to be said there about um, this moment in in the mid seventeenth century that is sometimes mined as the the, the turning point. Um, but, you know, if it's, if it's not the turning point, then, then what, what exactly is, is going on there? Um, another thinker who, uh, didn't, uh, uh, make it into the discussion today or, uh, really into the book, he might be buried in a footnote somewhere, but, uh, didn't really get, uh, I think the attention that he was, to, um, is, uh, is, uh, Dong Yue, um, who is, uh, well, his name goes by a number of pronunciations, but the, this is the pronunciation, uh, pronunciation. I'll, I'll stick with, Dong Yue. Um, Most famously, he's associated with um, uh, Xiu Bu, this, uh, you know, a, a sequel to the uh, um, Journey to the West. Um, and he actually wrote very extensively um, on philology um, in this period, mid-17th century. Um, the texts are not well known, and in part because, in contrast, actually a lot of the texts that I focus on in this book, they're not as widely accessible. Um, these were, I, I found them while doing archival work in Japan and uh, filled up, you know, a notebook you know transcribing by hand these, these interesting texts and hopefully I'll be able to return to them someday. Um, but they, he really... Uh, I think Plum's kind of the extremes of correlating um, I Ching cosmology um, and language. Uh, and I think it would be really interesting to, to ex- think as well about how this might relate to some of his uh, uh, better known literary pursuits. Um uh, although the, the authorship of Xiobu is a little bit in dispute, i, I, I had as a little <laughs> qualification there. But anyway, so so those are my, my, my picks Fang Jiu and Dong yeah
1: <laughs> I have to admit, I did not notice Dong Yue in the book. I will have to go hunting yeah, in the footnotes yeah, yeah. for him.
0: <laughs> well, uh, he, he can uh, be glad that he has at least one, his, his name is being raised here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, with this, we do come to the end of your book, but there is an epilogue. Um, So, you know, we've come to the end of the body chapters, I suppose, but... The epilogue. So the epilogue does touch on some of the later, you know, more recent resonances, particularly on and around um, language reforms and modern Chinese language reforms specifically. Um, and as listeners of this channel might know, this is something that has attracted quite a bit of interest recently, as there are some new books on the topic. Uh, so this epilogue does go through a few, you know, um, a number of ideas and people from the Ming that were referenced later. Um, And you end the book itself with this line, as esoteric as their writings appear, the concerns of Ming philologists continue to resurface within China's linguistic practices today. So there's a lot that this epilogue covers, but is there, you know, one particular takeaway from the Ming case um, that you want to leave listeners with, particularly listeners who might be, um, especially interested in language reform?
0: Yeah, you know, I think one of the bigger takeaways would be an issue that actually came up earlier in, in our conversation, but just to, to sort of reframe it in this this context is, uh, you know, what does it mean to engage with, with phonographic uh, writing in China? And I've uh, laid out what I see um, here is, you know, one way we might contrast uh the interest in in phonographic writing in the ming in contrast to the reform period which is broadly speaking in the reform period uh a goal of mass literacy uh versus in the ming uh one of you know theoretical abstraction of linguistic sounds uh but i think there's probably room for for uh you know more nuanced uh, uh studies of of this relationship, um, if we look at what's transpiring um, uh, in the early 20th century in China, late 19th century through the first half of the 20th century and, and beyond, um, as of course rooted in in things that are very specific to the modern context, uh, but also clearly born out of a much longer trajectory. Um, I think there are there's there's a lot of room for for uh, uh, new stories to tell um, about how this kind of reform either really was um, a revolution from or to what degree was it actually also pulling on some of these earlier um, trends. Um, as I talked about in the epilogue, in some ways there were various kind of self-conscious um, overtures to these earlier periods in ways that were um, sometimes, you know, self-serving. But uh, uh, but in any case, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I hope that there can be, a, you know, a productive dialogue with people who work in this more, Uh, modern um, area, because I I sort of touch on it very briefly in this epilogue. And I I think there's probably much more to be done.
1: Oh, I I think definitely in terms of much more to be done. (laughs) But also the fact that you definitely touch on it. I mean, there's a number of different sort of strands that you lay out in terms of different people who reference earlier thinkers or different time, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot um, in the epilogue. So you know, definitely hit chapter one, <laughs> the middle section, but do not skip the epilogue.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: But with this, we come to the end of your book, you know, in its entirety, um, and the end of our conversation as a whole of uh, it, I hope that we, you know, um, had a chance to scratch the surface of some of what's in your book, there is so very much <laughs> in it, in terms of ideas and thinkers and texts, it is so very rich. Um, but now that you are done with this project, now that the book is out there,
0: yeah.
1: um, what are you working on now, Nathan? What is inspiring you at the moment?
0: Thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's very, uh, a great moment, you know, to be, <laughs> when you're done with the book and it's, it's a long uh, uh, process. And, and so I, I've been going in a few different directions. The, the area that's um, captured my uh, interest uh, as of as of late, and is one that, of course, um, speaking with you is is one of really the you know I think uh, true up and coming scholars in, in this area, and I have much to learn from you in this area, uh, this uh, this field. But but it's this burgeoning, I think, field of study, which is Manchu. Uh, we could say literary culture. Uh, I approach more, given my background from a kind of intellectual history uh, perspective. Um, uh, but but uh, so so I'm looking at um, how uh, Manchu writings um, integrated with um, Chinese um, intellectual and uh, literary traditions, um, and how um, this might uh, contribute to our understanding of uh, both ideas of Manchu identity um, and also Qing. Uh, intellectual culture uh, more broadly, uh, as well as, of course, the kind of Manchu study specific questions of what were the spheres of of Manchu influence outside of the the better known um, administrative or bureaucratic ones
1: we were talking about bias before um, so with the you know full all of my own bias here that sounds fascinating <laughs> I mean that genuinely but I will acknowledge that you are talking to the converted here but um,
0: I'll take it
1: I, I very much look forward to to reading and hearing and listening to to more about that as you go forward um, but thank you again for, for taking the time to talk to me about this <laughs> this book (laughs) um, and this work in particular.
0: Thank you very much uh, for, for having this conversation with me. It was really a pleasure.